We are going to be back at Acts 20 again this morning, looking at um, Paul's conclusion to his ministry to uh, the Ephesians specifically, but kind of the whole church around uh, where he's been traveling in his missionary journeys around the Aegean Sea in Greece and in what's modern-day Turkey. But before we get there, let's pray again together and ask God to bless uh, the reading of his word um, and to deliver uh, what he has for us from our ears to our hearts. Father, thank you for a beautiful day. God, I'm so excited that Easter is next week. Uh, we have much to celebrate. Um, we have such a great salvation. Uh, we have such a great debt of sin that uh, has been paid. As we sang earlier of uh, no cost to us and yet great cost to Christ. How free and costly was the love um, that you displayed for us, God, and that you still extend today to sinners. Um, you extend grace. Uh, you give us hope for this life and the next. God, we, uh, we have more than enough in Christ, and in him we are more than conquerors. And yet, Lord, our flesh so often is so strong, so we pray, God, that this morning you would put us aside, put me aside, and, and uh, overcome uh, what remains of our flesh, God, that we this morning could graze in green pastures, led by our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this morning, like I said, we're back in Acts 20, and last week we took a look at, uh, at the church, sort of from a corporate standpoint, the body of Christ. And uh, our text this morning gives us a glimpse into Paul's specific uh, ministry and interaction that he had with the leaders of the church. So if last week was kind of about love for the church in the context of the congregation, this week is about love for the church in the context of godly and righteous leadership. Uh, there are good and bad leaders throughout the world in every sphere of life that you can imagine, whether it's uh, politics or workplace or the home. Um, the way that leaders function and operate has everything to do, it seems, with the way that the world goes around or doesn't go around. You know, uh, uh, political leaders in a country can make for poverty or they can make for prosperity. Yeah, leadership in the workplace can make for contention and strife, or it can make for productivity and success. And in the home, uh, there's no lack of uh, examples, both positive and negative, of how bad leadership can create all kinds of corruption. You can have in the family uh, a lot of turmoil, or you can have peace. And a lot of that comes from the way the leaders in those various spheres of life operate and behave. And it's no different within the church. We took a look last week at Paul's ministry to the church, how he, he encouraged the church. He was going around teaching and encouraging the church. He was also collecting an offering. He was focused on, on giving to Christ's church. We saw how he persevered through all kinds of difficulty and trial, and how in the midst of all that difficulty and trial, he continued to make himself available to the church of God. And this week, as our text continues, uh, we see more of Paul's moving around the Mediterranean. He's now coming down 
from Troas. He's in a boat with, with uh, Luke and others, and he's traveling uh, along the eastern edge of the sea, headed south, with his goal ultimately being to visit Jerusalem in time for uh, Pentecost so that he can distribute the collection that he's been, um, the, the funds that he's been collecting. So let's stand together and we will read the remain, what remains of Acts chapter 20. It starts in verse 17, Acts 20, 17 through 38. And the word of the Lord by the hand of Luke reads like this. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching to you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on part of all. And they were embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. You may be seated. So we see at the outset of this in verse 17 that um, Paul calls the elders of Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. Instead of traveling inland, like it's about 30 miles to Ephesus, Paul is, as we know, in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. And so he decides instead of making another visit, which might turn into another 
all-night preaching engagement, um, he decides just to call the elders to him. And this is a small verse, and it can be passed over quickly, but I think it's, it is important for us to notice that there are leaders in the church. There are elders in the church. And they were appointed by Paul on previous engagements. Uh, God gives leaders to the church. And Ephesians 4.11 says that he gives, he gives the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, pastors and teachers, for the building up of the body. And there are those today who would say that the church has one leader, which in a sense, of course, is true. It's the Lord Jesus. He is the head of the church. But he does give under shepherds, and we see that here. Paul doesn't go to Ephesus. He doesn't call the entire church out to Miletus. He just calls the elders. He calls the leaders of the church in Ephesus in this case. The church has leaders, and this is part of God's good design for the organization and function and structure of his body, the church. So, of course, there is one head over the church, Jesus, but he has given elders as the organizational leadership structure Individuals that he has gifted and called to care specifically for the church as leaders. Paul says in verse uh, 18 that, that they knew how he lived among them the whole time from the first day until he set foot in Asia. He was with them for three years. And Paul, though he says, you knew how I lived among you for these three years, he then kind of bullet points some of uh, what what summarizes or characterized his ministry to them. He reminds them of how he lived among them. And I'm glad he did, since we obviously were not there. Verse 18, I'm sorry, 19, he says, Serving the Lord with all humility. And as we go through this, this is how Paul functioned, but it's a model for church leaders today. And whether it's church leaders here at, at Redemption Hill or church leaders at, at other churches or other areas or ministries around the world, what we're going to see here is this, Paul's ministry should act as a template for how leadership in the church should look, how leaders in the church should act, how their time should be spent, what they should be made busy with. Again, it's the building up of the body is the reason why God gives leadership to the church. So it says he served with humility. Served with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to him through the plots of the Jews. It says he didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ first bullet here on your outline is service in humility. Paul served in humility. Humility is a difficult thing I find to nail down and define. It's like you, you can see some of the things that Paul did th through his ministry and you might look at it and say, that's not humble at all. And then there are other times where you would see someone who maybe in a modern day is, is very lowly um, very self-flagellating, uh, very down on themselves all the time. And that on the outside can look like humility, 
but can just as easily be rooted in pride. Humility is a very difficult thing to diagnose and identify so often because just how it looks doesn't, it doesn't give us enough information to be able to make a decision one way or the other, whether someone has a pride problem or are truly humble. But I think it might, might be helpful for us to define humility as the, um, the opposite of a sense of entitlement. This idea that, that you owe it to me, or that somehow because of all Paul's work and ministry to the church, that they owe him something. And we'll see as we go through this that, that even though that may have been true, he denied uh, receiving a lot of times funds from them, choosing rather to work with his own hands. Paul did not have that sense of entitlement that, that he was owed anything. And so in that sense, uh, he was a, a humble minister of the gospel. And why not? Why didn't, why, why didn't Paul feel as though anyone owed him anything? The gospel reaches into our hearts the more we understand it and the longer we live in it. The greater we understand God's love for us and what was done for us to bring us to where we are, to bring us to God, it, it militates against any sense of... of um, of ownership or of being owed this or that, it, it, it removes a sense of uh, debt that we might feel that others have towards us or that life has towards us, that somehow life owes us this or that. And it's because the gospel shows us clearly day in and day out that while we, what we were owed was hell, we're owed sin, death because of our sin. That is what we are owed. And instead of receiving that, we receive heaven. We receive the righteousness of Christ in exchange for our filthy rags. And, and Paul understands that so uh, abundantly and clearly that any notion of people or life owing him anything is, is put to shame and, and, and dead and buried and he doesn't even consider it. Because he understands the gospel. Paul Paul's ministry to the church is, is marked by service and humility. And he goes on to say that uh, not only did he serve with humility, but he served with tears. Paul's ministry to the church largely, largely was preaching and teaching. But he did it through, with empathy and with earnestness, that there, there were tears in what he had to say. And I think it's easy for us to read the truths of Scripture and take them in and believe on them and then approach everyone in our life from a very stale, stagnant, uh, unfeeling, unemotional standpoint. We know the program and everyone needs to get with the program. But Paul served with empathy and earnestness. He served with tears. He had honesty in what he preached, right? He did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. It says twice in this, in this section. So he didn't hold anything back, but he did it not only with honesty, but also, also with empathy. He had content, but he also had the right attitude. As he realized and recognized the importance of the human the importance and severity of the human condition, that we are not machines. And so he approached people with tears, with empathy and earnestness. 
And he did this through trials. We talked last week about the plot uh, from the Jews. to They were going to try and kill him on a ship, presumably on his way to Jerusalem. And he persevered through that, went up back through uh, Macedonia instead. He served the church with perseverance. Both plots from the Jews and plots from the Gentiles. You remember when Tim preached in uh, chapter 19 a uh, couple weeks ago, where there was a, a riot from uh, these, these craftsmen who are creating idols. So he has pressure from the Jews. He has pressure from the Gentiles. He has uh, distractions and trials at every turn that he has to persevere through. Verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. It says basically the same thing in verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of of God. Paul's ministry and faithful ministers of the gospel today, their ministry is marked by bold proclamation, by bold teaching. He doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't pull any punches. He takes out all the stops and gives the full counsel of God, which is unpopular at certain times, right? There's much in this book that is unpopular, particularly in our day. And there are many preachers and teachers and elders and leaders out there in the church who avoid certain topics today because they're unwilling to stand up to the pressures of society, even pressures within the church to capitulate to uh, prominent and uh, egregious sins that our culture in recent years has uh, heartily embraced. Paul says he does not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. He is a bold teacher. Did not shrink from saying anything that was profitable. And he says, in teaching you in public and from house to house. Paul's ministry was both public and private. He preached and taught in the synagogue. He taught at the school of Tyrannus in, in Ephesus, where he has a... a a public forum where people who did not know the gospel, who did not know Christ, would come and could learn. And there's many accounts of questions being asked and them inviting him back the next day because they want to hear more about it. But he also taught privately, as we saw last week, and the third story of people's homes, late into the night, feeding them, breaking bread with them, having conversations with them and enjoying life with them. Encouraging them in the Lord, he taught both publicly and privately. Verse 21 says, Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Both Jews and Greeks. And the idea here is, is evangelism, that evangelism was a part of Paul's ministry and, and widespread evangelism at that. It was not just to the Jews or just to the Greeks, just to the Gentiles, but the gospel went out to everyone and he was diligent in sharing the gospel. Widespread evangelism. And the message that Paul shared was one of repentance and faith. 
testifying, again in verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had a pointed and specific message as a part of his evangelism. He didn't shy away from sin when evangelizing. God to him and the Christian faith was not a means to a happier, fuller life. It wasn't a, a three or four or five or ten step program to having a, a happy family. It wasn't something that he thought that we could add to our lives to just give us a fuller experience, a little bit of spirituality peppered in with your personal finances and business acumen. It was, it was everything and sin was involved. He had a clear gospel, and it was a gospel that had integrity. It was, it, was, it was tangible. It had substance. Further on in the chapter, in verse, in verse 31, it says that he worked day and night. And we went over that last week, right? Someone fell out the window because they fell asleep. He tirelessly was working day and night. In verse 33 and 34 Uh, I'll just read it for us. We'll get there later. But I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Paul did not covet anyone's wealth. He had a righteous disinterest in the wealth of others. And this too ought to mark faithful ministers of the gospel and faithful leaders and elders of the church. This is also common today particularly on TV, right, where you can put your hand on the speaker and send a hundred bucks and all of a sudden next month something special is supposed to happen to you. That was not Paul's way. He had a righteous disinterest in the wealth of others. And then lastly, in verse 35, he's called to serve the weak. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul did not feel as though anyone owed him anything. He instead took what strength he had to give and serve the weak of the church. Paul's faithful ministry to the church is marked by service to the weak. So Paul opens up this section as he calls the Ephesian elders in he opens up this section with a defense and a summary of his ministry, and we can see that as a template for how leadership in the church should look even still today. This, these qualities are not unique to Paul. Um, he had them in spades, but it's a template for leadership in the church today, and it's what we should be on the lookout for amongst our own leadership. And if you are to move to some other part of the country or world, This is what you ought to be looking for in leadership of any church that you would ever be a part of. Don't be overly concerned or consumed with programs, with how, what is the youth ministry like? What is the music like? You know, something that, that very much bothers me about modern, at least American church culture is this idea that in there's a church on every corner, and I can easily go find something that fits exactly what I am looking for. And oftentimes, that, those things that we're looking for is not godly leadership. It's not how the, the truth is, is preached without shrinking back. It's not about how the whole counsel of God is displayed and prepared and delivered. It's about 
the chairs. It's about the color of the walls. It's about the, the volume of the music and the instruments involved. It's about the relative age range of the congregation. It's about the, the programs that they have for my kids and the toys that they have in the nursery and things that, that are foreign to what Paul lays out here in terms of what is important in a church. What's important is humble service, empathetic and earnest service, service in persevering through difficulties, bold teaching, bold teaching both publicly and privately in, in buildings and in homes, widespread evangelism, day, to, uh, day and night work, hard work, righteous disinterest in the wealth of others, and service to the weak. We will go on in verse 22 now. And so after laying out the details of Paul's ministry, he continues to the Ephesian elders, saying, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of whom I have gone about uh, proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I can imagine as the Ephesian elders are listening to this, like, okay, Paul, you, you already said that we ourselves know how you behaved among us for these three years. Where is this going? And then he drops the bomb in verse 22, saying he's going to Jerusalem, he's never coming back, and they're never going to see him again. This reminds me of the, when, I, when I took the job that I'm in now, I had been talking with this IT director, um, for a month or so, and we had, a, we had a few interviews and then a few phone calls afterwards to get me ready for the job and things, and I came into the office on the first day, and no, no one was there, and someone eventually came down and unlocked the door for me, and like, I'm here for Chris? Oh, okay, yeah, he's, he's not here yet, you can set up, and he'll be here in a little bit. I'm like, okay, it's my first day of the job, and uh, then finally he comes, and we sit down with the CEO, and he says, well... This is my last week here. Like, okay. Um, not what I was expecting. Someone who had been sort of with me through this process of starting a new job. He was going to be my, he's the director of IT, and I'm supposed to be answering to him, and I'm kind of his, uh, his second in command, and now he's leaving, and there's no one replacing him. Um, I imagine that's kind of how these elders felt. Paul, what do you mean you're leaving? Paul says that in every city, the Holy Spirit's basically telling him that, that he's not going to be coming back, that imprisonment and afflictions await him. And if you'll thumb over, or possibly on the same page here in chapter 21, we see a little bit of what this is going to look like in verse 7. So Paul, by this point, has made it to Jerusalem says in uh, chapter 21, verse 7, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at uh, Ptolemais and greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. 
The next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. We had four unmarried daughters who, uh, I'm sorry, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. We were staying for many days, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound up his feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. When we heard this, uh, we were, I'm sorry, when, when we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. Ultimately, he is shipped off to Rome. And then further down the line, ultimately, he's beheaded by Emperor Nero. That is his fate. That is where he's going. But listen to Paul's attitude here, both in our, our text in chapter 20 and 21. Verse 24 says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. He does not account his life of any value. So what then is Paul's goal? If it's not, not longevity, not, not prolonged longevity, right? We saw that kind of earlier last week when he, he hears about a plot from the Jews that they're going to kill him on this boat. If he doesn't care about his life, why doesn't he get on the boat and so be it? If he dies, he dies. Paul doesn't necessarily care about, about prolonged longevity, but what he wants is to finish his course and his ministry. He knows that God has work for him to do, and it involves Jerusalem, it involves Rome in chains, but it's not over yet. Paul's goal in life is to finish his course in his ministry. He's concerned about fruitful labor. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 through 22, it reads, and this is Paul writing, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And he goes on and says, And yet which I shall choose, I, I can't tell. He wants to depart and be with Christ, but he knows that if he sticks around, it will mean fruitful labor for the church. So Paul is going about, he is testifying to the grace of God, to the gospel. He's preaching the kingdom. He knows that where he's going ultimately is going to lead to chains and death, but he's not concerned, he's not enamored with his own life. His goal is to serve the Lord, to finish his ministry. And he says that none of them are going to see him again. In verse 26, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Why is he innocent of the blood of all? Verse 27, Because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This idea of being innocent of the blood of all uh, harkens back to Ezekiel. 
God is speaking to Ezekiel in chapter 33, and he calls Ezekiel a watchman. And he outlines what the responsibilities of the watchmen are. So you can imagine, like, uh, you know, the parapets. I don't know if they had those in, in that time or whatever. But a guy that's up on the wall of a castle, and he's standing watch. And there's a night watch, and there's a day watch. And he's looking out at night for torches of an army that may be coming, or during the day of dust that would be kicked up from, from uh, horses. And his responsibility is to warn the kingdom, to warn the army if someone is coming to attack. And if he didn't do that, if he failed, if he fell asleep, or if he saw something and didn't say anything, and then the city is overrun, overtaken, and destroyed by this army, the blood of those people is on the watchman who failed to report the, the onslaught. Ezekiel words it this way. This is, is God speaking to Ezekiel as a prophet, appointing him as a watchman. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Wherever you hear a, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn away from that, per, that uh, to turn, sorry, to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand, because you did not warn him. But if you warn the wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And that's what Paul is saying. I didn't shrink back from declaring the whole council. I told you that the army was coming from the south. I told you that there were about 300 of them. I said they were going to come through the south gate in 45 minutes. You didn't pull together your swords, your bows, you didn't put on your armor. I am free of your blood. I am not accountable for loss that you suffered because I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. And that's Paul's defense here. So Paul's outlined his ministry. He's explained that he's going to be leaving. And now in, in Verses 28 through 31, we see a warning that Paul has for the elders that will remain. They were taking up Paul's mantle. I mean, Paul already wasn't there consistently anyways. He was traveling all over the region. But after being there for three years, I'm sure that they got used to him sort of being their shield against issues that arose within the church and their reliable witness. But now Paul's not going to be there anymore. And what does he have to say to them? Verse 20, I'm sorry, 28, he says to them, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. He starts out by saying, pay close attention to yourselves, to the elders and the leaders of the church, that they need to watch after their own lives. They need to watch after their own doctrine, their own way of living. This is sort of akin to when you get on a, an airplane and the, the steward or stewardess is standing up front and they have the the little booklet open and no one's paying attention anyways. Um, but 
they say that if the mask drops down because of a loss of cabin pressure, that you need to put the mask on yourself first before you deal with your kids. That's what Paul is saying here. Put the mask on yourself first. Jesus said it this way in, in, in Matthew 6, 23. He said, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And Paul recognizes that the leadership of the church is responsible for the way that the church is going to go. That the health of the church in large part is attributed to the health of the leadership. So Paul, knowing that, says, first off, guard yourself. Keep close look after yourself. Pay careful attention to yourself. And he goes on to say also to watch over and care for the flock. To all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Notice with me that Paul does not, well, what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, watch after yourselves and the church that I worked so hard to establish, that I spent days and nights building up, that I traveled all over the place encouraging, that I lost sleep and time and money and, and I was hungry. All the ways that I suffered for this church, for my church, don't let it go to waste. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that it's his church. Paul's the one that's been working hard, right? But in the midst of all of the difficult things that Paul has been through, he does not count the church as something that belongs to him. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he, with, which he obtained with his own blood. In 1 Corinthians Paul is addressing this issue amongst the Corinthian church, where the Corinthian church is being divided up, where certain people are taking sides with certain individuals. There are those who follow Apollos, and there are those who follow Paul. And he addresses them in this way, saying, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul does not feel a sense of ownership over the church. He knows that the church is bought with Christ's blood. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, he goes on and says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Of course he wasn't. The church was purchased by the blood of God. And it's interesting here how Paul words this in, in Acts, saying the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. How closely Paul here ties Jesus and God. Jesus is God. God doesn't have flesh. How can he have blood? But here we see that the church of God was purchased by God's own blood. It is his church. It is not Paul's church, and it is certainly not 
our church. The church belongs to God. So why, why all the, the fuss here? Charging people uh, sternly to watch after this church. Why the qualifications for ministry? All the, this faithful ministry outline that we've been through and Paul's defense of his own ministry. Why is it necessary that these kind of people do something as mundane as, as teaching from a book and offering loving care to individuals? It's important that people qualify and reach this high bar because of the value of the church. And I won't go over everything, of course, that we went through last week, but the church is hugely valuable. And you don't put, you don't put a mall security guard on a security detail for the president. You don't put the janitor in charge of uh, the night watch for the museum that has this incredibly valuable diamond. You don't put the mouse in charge of guarding the cheese. And you don't put wolves in charge of guarding the sheep. The value of the item being protected dictates the requirements for the protector. The value of the protected sets the qualification requirements for the protector. And Paul sees how valuable the church is, and so he charges uh, solemnly these leaders to look after themselves carefully and to guard the flock that God has purchased with his own blood. The church is to be loved and served because it does not belong to us. It belongs to God. The work, the work that Paul lays out here and outlines for elders reminds me of, of Nehemiah, uh, where ne- Nehemiah... Uh, in the Old Testament, the, the walls around Jerusalem had been broken down. And Nehemiah decides that the walls ought to be built up. So he starts this campaign to build up the walls of Jerusalem again. And the surrounding nations uh, criticize and scoff at this wall, this giant, giant undertaking that's being done by the Jews. They don't think that it can be done. Uh, and they, they joke about how if a fox came over and jumped on that wall, the wall would fall down. Like, they're not even doing a good job building it. And then as, the, as they start to do a better and better job of building it, and the walls actually start to come up, then the, the nations around start to get a little bit nervous and start sending raiding parties to, to stop the work. And so Nehemiah, because he wants to get the job done quickly, he instructs the people to have a trowel in one hand and a sword in another. And so they're building the wall, but they're always looking on the horizon for the enemy that's coming. And they have a sword strapped to their side, ready to fight at a moment's notice. And that's the picture that we have here from Paul of the leadership of the church. That on the one hand, their job is to proclaim and to build up the church, to proclaim the whole counsel of God. So with one hand, they have the trowel and they're building the church. They're building the walls. They're edifying. They're encouraging They are strengthening and helping to mature the body of Christ and to build her up into something beautiful. And then on the other hand, they have a sword because they know that there are wolves that are going to come from without and within, and they need to be prepared to also deal destruction to those who do violence to the church of Christ. In the picture that Paul gives and Christ gives also 
in the Gospels is that of a, a, a shepherd and wolves and sheep, that the church of God is, is, a, is a, a sheepfold. We are the sheep of his hand, and Christ is the shepherd who watches out for the sheep. But there are wolves who will come in, describes them as fierce wolves in verse 29, will come in from among you not sparing the flock. And shepherds had, shepherds had two tools. They had a rod and a staff. And the staff was used for guiding the sheep along to paths to bring them to green grass to eat. And the rod was there to break the bones of wolves that came to try and snatch the sheep. There were also uh, robbers who would come and steal sheep. And the rod was there to beat people up who were going after the sheep. So whether it's a trowel and a sword or a rod and a staff, the, the job of the faithful minister of Christ in his church is twofold. It's a twofold work of both protecting and building up. The New Testament is full of examples of false teachers coming into the church, full of instruction for how to deal with them. full of instruction on what to be aware of and careful for and to keep your eye out for. In 2 Timothy, 3, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own possessions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't say that necessarily there are going to be people like the Jews and the Gentiles who come in to physically destroy the church, to physically drag them away, that there would be martyrs. That's not really his warning. I'm not saying he's not concerned about that. But what he sees as coming is that there are people that are going to come in, they're not going to spare the flock, they're going to arise from within, and it says that they're going to speak twisted things and draw away the disciples after them. This is the opposite of that declaring the whole truth of God. This is like anti-teaching. He's not as concerned that people are going to lose their physical lives as he is that they're going to be taught incorrect things. And Christianity is a, is a, it's a fascinating, awesome religion, faith, whatever you want to call it, where we believe in certain doctrines and truths that are rooted in history and in grace. And so the facts matter. And the truths of Scripture matter. They're paramount. And Paul, so because they're paramount, Paul's concern is that someone's going to come in and they're going to teach something that's contrary, and that is what's going to really do the damage. It's not going to be people losing their lives. It's going to be people believing wrong things. That's his concern for the church. People will come in, they, they will not endure sound teaching. They'll have itching ears. They're going to accumulate for them teachers. They will turn away from listening to the truth, and instead they will wander into myths. That is the risk of false teachers. Jude is full of this, and I'm just going to rattle through uh, about half the chapter here. Jude, there's only one chapter, so it's okay. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. They, are feasts. they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. 
twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Listen to how extreme this, these, these indictments are for people who are just saying the wrong things. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. And Paul says, watch out, this is not your church. Watch out, be alert. You are overseers at best. This is Christ's church, and you have to be careful for these people who are going to come in and say wrong things. And it did happen. Read in Revelation, the second chapter of one of the letters is to the Ephesian church, and it says that, that false teachers did come in, although it sounds as though the Ephesians were equipped to do battle with the wolves who came into the sheepfold. The church is not her own. We don't, even us individually, we don't belong to ourselves, right? 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that we are not our own, we were bought with a price. So how much more the collective body of Christ, how much more does she not belong to herself, and even does not belong to the leadership, but belongs to Christ? And therefore the battle is real, and it's really important. And again, you don't put the mall cop in charge of security detail for the president, so to speak. Paul, uh, or Luke rather, closes the section in this way in verse 32. Paul recognizing that there, there's great importance in the leadership of the church, and yet even that is not the end all because the church ultimately does not belong to the leaders. Verse 32 says, And now I commend, to you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, and you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul is leaving, but he says, you're not alone. The God who owns you still owns you. He still leads you. He still cares for you. Ultimately, you are his, and he is good. He commends them to God's grace. He doesn't com commend them to popes. He doesn't commend them to priests. He doesn't commend them to councils or to gurus. He commends them to God. It's God's grace that's going to protect them. It's God's grace that will bring them ultimately home. He commends them to this God who said in verse 35 that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. This, this quotation actually doesn't exist anywhere in the Gospels. This is one of the only, if not the only, quotation in the New Testament of Jesus that is not present in the Gospels. But can't we hear him saying it? And I'm sure that he did. 
it is better to give than to receive. And that acts as a model for Paul's ministry and uh, an imperative uh, command and modus operandi for the leaders in the church today, that it is better to give than to receive. Selfless service marked Paul's ministry, and it ought to mark every elder who recognizes that the church belongs to God. If you love God, as we said last week, you will love what he loves. You will love who he loves. So while there are under-shepherds and overseers given by God to lead the church, ultimately it is Jesus who is the good shepherd. Jesus who is the chief shepherd. And the chief shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And the instruction for church leaders is to do the same, to lay their lives down for the sheep. Speaking of Jesus, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter says, He committed no sin. This is our good and great chief shepherd, the overseer of our souls. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, you were straying like sheep. You were straying like sheep. But now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. I've titled the message this morning, The King of Love My Shepherd Is. It's another old hymn. And as we close, I'll read it for us. But consider, consider again the value of the church and therefore the importance of sound leadership within the church. It has to be the criteria by which uh, we live and observe. It's not a once and, and, and ever done. I'm kind of glad that Tim's not here this morning. Um, but we, we ought to be examining our, our leaders, right? Our elders, Kelly included, Kelly and Tim. And again, if you ever are to leave and find another church, may this be the priority for your search. What is the leadership of the church like? Because as the leader goes, so goes the church. And thank God that we have a great high priest and a good shepherd who ultimately we follow. He is the head of the church. He is our shepherd and he is the king of love. The king of love, my shepherd, is whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. Where streams of living water flow, my ransomed soul he leadeth. And where the verdant pastures grow, with food celestial feedeth. Perverse and foolish oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me. And on his shoulder gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. In death's dark veil I fear no ill, with thee, dear Lord, beside me. Thy rod and staff, my comfort still, thy cross before to guide me. Thou spreadest a table in my sight, thy unction grace bestoweth, and oh, what transport of delight from thy pure chalice floweth. 
And so through all the length of days, thy goodness faileth never. Good shepherd, may I sing thy praise within thy house forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your leadership of your church. The leadership that you give to the church. Thank you for Tim and thank you for Kelly here at Redemption Hill. And thank you for the thousands other who, who are scattered about the earth, Lord, leading your church righteously. We are indeed sheep. The greatest earthly shepherd among us is but a sheep. We're often foolish and we're prone to wander. We're easily frightened. We are filthy. But we have a shepherd who carries a rod and a staff. Lord, we are grateful for the rod that drove away sin and death. The gift of heaven that was given to those who only deserve hell. The crushing blow that was dealt to the serpent that delivered us from the bondage of sin and death and instead gives us an eternal life with Christ. God, as we weigh the importance and the value of the church, may it cause us to love one another more deeply. And may it cause the leadership of the church to tremble in, her service, in, in, in their service to her. We're grateful, God, here at Redemption Hill. I am certainly grateful for what you have put in place, for the faithfulness of the leadership that we have here, who recognize the value of the church and the, the, the uh, severity of the task at hand to build up and beautify and also to protect the church that belongs to God, purchased by the blood of Jesus. Lord, thank you for this time Thank you for Easter coming next week. As we walk through uh, this Passion Week individually and Good Friday, may we together consider the value of the church that was purchased by the blood of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.